Hey, thanks for downloading this uh, podcast. Um, hope you're all well. Hope um, the new year has started in a positive uh, sense and um, the uh, fun and games of uh, what's going on in Parliament is uh, uh, empowering you to take more control of what you're doing rather than relying on people who clearly have the best interests of us all at heart. So politics over there. No more talking politics for the rest of the year, I'm sure. Um, yeah, hope you're well. Um, thanks for clicking the link again. So um, this podcast is um, uh, myself and uh, friend Dave Oliver, who uh, up until the end of December last year, uh, 2018, was uh, head of Digital at LV. He also set up the LV Innovation uh, kind of lab, um, termed LV Tomorrow, which was called LV Tomorrow, which um, was really looking at future blending future technology with future product development. And in a podcast, we talk about that. We talk about how large corporates and small startups are suffering from the same challenges, um, but also exploiting the same opportunities in terms of blending tech, um, uh, 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 changing user behaviour, changing human behaviour. Um, uh, in, t- in terms of delivering better product design. And it's interesting to hear Dave's thoughts on how those two um, somewhat uh, conflicting ends of the spectrum, the startup and the corporate, have actually got a lot of common common challenges and, and how some of the um, approaches you can take to getting over those challenges, I, I say, are the same across the piece. Uh, we also talk about music, uh, a bit of sport, uh, talk about um, some really quite interesting books that, that they, and some training courses that Dave recommends. Um, and, and kind of generally ramble on. So I hope you enjoy it. Um, I'll come back at the end of the podcast um, with a quick summary and also one or two um, little bits and bobs that are coming up soon. So I hope you enjoy it. All right, okay, there we go. So, it hello, works. Dave. Hello. <laughs> yeah, it works now. It didn't work a minute ago. Um, that was probably my, my fault, actually. It's a great, actually, it is a really good piece of software, cloud-based, yeah. but... It does have its problems sometimes, but I'm getting used to it. Um, so I would have introduced you with the intro, but do you want to say a little bit about who you are, what you do, and probably how we got to know each other, really? Okay, I can't really remember. How do we get to know each other? Yeah, yeah I know, I know, okay. <laughs> you said, I know I said I'd never talk about that ever again. <laughs> no, that's a different story for another day. Uh, so my name's Dave Oliver. Um, I guess I'm a designer. I suppose um, I've done a whole bunch of jobs and uh, most recently I've been working for LV Liverpool Victoria for eight years believe it or not I've just left I left in January so I'm kind of unemployed at the moment which is awesome it's the first time since school I, I just realized it's like the, the first time since well yeah since school so forever because I've, I've never had that time even when I was a student like you're working and stuff wow. so that's amazing and uh, yeah, how do you've we done well yeah, um, it's it's just cool. Like just on a Monday, like me and my wife go shopping, then we go to spin class, and I'm the only I'm the only bloke in the room with all these like mums doing spinning and stuff. Um, yeah, it's bizarre. Anyway, what's the question? How do we get to know each other? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you're a designer. You're called Dave, and yeah, yeah I think I remember, but I'm getting old, so you're younger yeah. than me, so you should be out now. So uh, we we did a project, didn't we, when you were working at. Uh, Green McCampbell mm. and um, yeah. I was in a meeting room at, at the end <laughs> and there was, there was a bunch of people in there and then um, Adam just kind of went and grabbed you I, I think you came in surprised and unprepared and uh, you didn't really know what we were even talking about I, th- I seem to think yeah. um, but you winged it and you winged it well and, <laughs> you know, 
Yeah. You, you won career. the job, and yeah, it was good. That's how we got I, to know each other. I winged it. Yeah. Yeah. My, I think that was my constant look of um, not knowing what's going on towards that time in my career at Greenwood Campbell. It was like, I really don't know what's going on, and I'm constantly surprised. <laughs> um, and I inevitably still wing it. We all wing it, right? To oh, a certain yeah. extent. Yeah. That's, what that's, the one, that's the one thing I've, I've kind of come to clearly realise over the last 10 years everyone is actually winging it and most if you can wing it without necessarily um, caring too much <laughs> then, then yeah. it's even better it's the ones that wing it and are petrified they're the ones I worry about yeah I know I've just read a really um, really interesting set of novels that was a trilogy about the life of Cicero mm. and it's really cool because at the start it's he's a guy he's going into politics obviously in very famous politician and everything else that he did but his yep. his whole skill was winging it through being an amazing um, orator and the rhetoric that he learned and he went to stay in Greece and stuff to learn how to speak and how to influence and it's basically three massive books about his life of winging it but because he can speak so well everyone believes what he says and yeah it's awesome see that's really it's like, we always get on to, we always drift off onto things and that's perfect because there was a um, there's something on a TED talk where this guy was proving something very similar. It was basically saying it doesn't necessarily matter what you say, it's how you present yeah. and, and how you come across. And this, this was a, the usual 18-minute TED Talk, but this was, he said absolutely nothing. He was just showing people graphs <laughs> and showing people videos of bland stuff and saying, look, this is how engaged I can get you when I'm not actually saying anything. Yeah. And, and it was kind of like, oh, right, it is how you present yourself. It's been a good orator as well. And I suppose... That's how, um, whatever I think of him, and I'm sure you probably think the same, people like Trump mm. and and some of the politicians over here, like Johnson and that, they get away with it. Um, they don't necessarily get away with it with people who have a slightly more refined understanding of what they're trying to do, but with those in their demographic, target demographic, it works, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> we. I did a... Um... Uh, like years ago when I was at the MOD I did a presentation course and it was it was awful it was like a week long course in a hotel room where you get videotaped and you, you have to re-watch your videos of how bad you are at public speaking at the start of the week and blah 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 and then by the end of the week the, you know you hopefully you've improved if you've done it well and it, it was a horrible thing to do like really horrible but really really useful and mm. they just um, gave the, the examples of Bill Clinton so basically the whole course was based around how Bill Clinton delivered speeches and delivered presentations and stuff. Um, yeah, if, if anyone's listening to this and they've thought about doing that course, do it. Really? It's terrifying, but really cool. Yeah, really worth it. Yeah. It must be something about US presidents. I suppose it's been ingrained in their DNA and their ego. I mean, yeah. I think Obama, Obama probably to me has is one of the most impressive speakers I've ever watched, listened to, whatever, just because of that ability to make incredibly emotional points and incredibly in-depth in and important points politically and socially, mm. but make them in a way that was very... And, and I think that's probably why in certain parts of America he was unpopular because he was able to unpick the truth and present it in a way and in a language that Joe, the, you know, Joe and... And Jack and and Neil and Bob, all the you know American American blue collar workers and white collar workers could understand. And I, 
think that's why that was one of the reasons amongst probably a few racial and and um, <clears throat> ide ideological reasons why why Republicans just went for him. So I think, but uh, yeah, I was just incredibly, always incredibly impressed. He did a he did a speech on Nelson Mandela's hundredth birthday. Yeah. It would have been his hundredth birthday. And he was talking about basically talking about Trump, and it was just he never mentioned it by name, but he was just unpicking hmm. little aspects, but not doing it in a tub thumping emotional way. It was just very, you know, oh, yeah. you know. Now we've got, pre you know, basically saying we've got a president that lies, and everyone thinks it's okay. <laughs> you know, yeah. just 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 think about that for a minute. Yeah? yeah, but I do think you're overthinking it. Like the best thing about Obama was just the fact Maybe. that he could uh, he could drop a mic with style and get away. <laughs> yeah, at the end of the White House correspondence dinner. Yeah, that was very good. But did you watch that speech? <laughs> no, no, I've just seen the GIF. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that that speech is fantastic, though. Is that, it? On, yeah, you should watch it. It's half an hour, but it's just yeah. Just okay, brilliant. cool. I'm making note of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, service design, right? I want to. I, I, as we were speaking before, mm. the um, we, we turned on the button to record. I, I, I was with um, uh, a couple of uh, uh, creatives, uh, uh, creative friends today. Um, yeah. I know they listened to this. So it's Ross Cleaver and Jamie Homer, and we uh, were at. Um, using an office, a uh, client of mine's key digital in Dorchester, working with one of their guys called Jamie McDonald, and we were doing a service design piece of work with Dorset County Council, and and we were doing a bit around um, kind of social social isolation, and they kind of came to me because I used to work for them a while ago, and they came to me and said, look, we we really struggle to get uh, inside our users' heads. And rapidly come up with ideas and and challenge convention in terms of how we deliver services and how our customers, users, people, patients, whatever you want to call them, interact with us. Um, and they contact me and they said that we want to just do a day session where you can bring some creatives in and a developer in and work through a process of service design where we get to the end of the day and we've got a, a suite of outputs and outcomes that we can take forward, right? Yeah. And I know service design, A, is a big part of your talent and your ability, um, and B, um, something that you're looking to continue moving forward in. But it's not really that easy, is it? It's not a very easy thing to do. And, and I was just wondering, in terms of when someone came to you at LV or when someone comes to you and says, all right, Dave, we've got this problem, um, we need to look at this, the way this service is delivered. What's your, what's your starting point? How do you start? How do you get things moving forward? Um, yeah, so I think my, I'm going to start by saying I don't think there is a process to service design mm. or even UX design or UCD or design thinking and all these kind of weird buzzwords that we've created for what is probably the same problem. And the irony is the kind of key principle of service design is that you co-create, yet by creating all these different little silos, we have siloed ourselves as designers and different types of designers, um, mm. which I heard someone else talk about the other day and I thought that was fascinating. But because there's no single process, you, you've got to start by understanding what the question is and then work out an appropriate process around that question. And for me, that inevitably always starts with um, some form of observation of who the user is or who the customer is, depending on what, what it is you're designing. Um, and that could just be, you know, a, a meeting over a coffee or a 
um, a formal interview or like more ethnographic stuff or just just watching them just like shadowing them for a day or a couple of days and the more sort of um people that have the problem you're trying to solve that you can just watch the answers will start to jump out at you and i've never ever had a scenario where that hasn't happened and mm. you know more, more often than not the person who you're watching will kind of start to understand what it is you're doing and, and with any luck they'll start designing solutions for you and then that's like co-creation in its greatest form because you just need to facilitate them who actually have to use a thing designing it and I, to me that always works just observing and asking questions and watching um, so that yeah that, that's where i'd start and kind of what level of pushback do you get with that because i've always come across <coughs> i'm sure you have two um normally senior stakeholders and senior managers who um their expectations around what the solution is yeah. <clears throat> and you kind of have to push back and go you know they might go um there's got to be a technological solution for this or yeah. there's got to be um, we know the answer already. We're just doing this user research and this engagement just to just to prove our point. Yeah. How do you get How do you get over that? Um, and it's probably a bit different in LV because there was there was some support. But how do you get over the kind of resistance, yeah. the kind of um, lack of belief in that in that approach? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. The thing is that there was when I first started, and we, I was told to um, create like a UCD process. Yeah, and for the reasons I've just explained, I, I didn't really believe that was the way to do it. Um, and it's really weird when you mute yourself because it all goes like deadly silent all of a sudden. Yeah, you're on your own. When I'm, excuse <laughs> me, I'm, I'm basically having a, having a big gulp of water. So yeah. when I when I mute myself, I'm either passing wind because that's what you do in your mid forties, oh, yeah. or I am um, with alarming frequency, Dave. Is that alarming? Alarming. Really? Alarming. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Alarming frequency. Um, uh, it's part of my midlife crisis action pack. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, stop fat flatulence. Um, yeah. Or, or I'm having a drink. So um, okay. I'm going to have okay. a. I'm going to have a. I'm going to have, have a drink, drink now. I'm not fine. Right. Ready. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Cool. Uh, yeah. So what I was getting at was that when I started at LV, there wasn't really support for that at all. It wasn't a thing. People weren't designing in any way other than just getting the opinions of the highest paid person, as that terrible acronym goes. Um, so the way I got around that, there's two things to it. You've got to show them how it works. You've got to get them in a room where you're doing testing or prototyping and observation of some type, because as soon as they see one nugget of information, then it's it's sold. And as long as you get a really senior person in to see that, kind of the support will grow and then you can build off of it. Um, but more important than that probably is having the relationship in the first place to do it and to invite someone knowing that they're going to turn up. And I guess that's that's a real cliche, right? Because anything in business is about relationships. But even more so, I'd say in giant um, internal structured corporates, because relationships are the only way to get anything done. So basically, you just yeah. got to be a nice guy and go for beer with some coffee with people <laughs> and have a chat. <laughs> that is basically the the first tick on the box in the box, isn't it? Be a nice guy, okay. and you'll get and you and you and that's that's number one on the list for service designers who want to try and make a bit of a difference. But yeah, I, I, I kind of see and I've seen situations where <clears throat> people still don't believe it's worthwhile. People mm -hmm. still don't believe it's worth spending time because it takes time and money because it it can cost a lot of money. <clears throat> excuse me to. Uh, to to really focus on getting under the under the skin of not just users but 
but yep. employees, how do you cope with either those really low expectations and people who think it's a waste of time, and conversely, those that actually absolutely expect the entire organisation to change because you've done some, you've done a bit of service design work. How did you deal with that kind of, that, that, those challenges? Um, yeah, I've, I've come across both of those. Um, the good or bad, depending on how you look at it, thing about people who think it's a waste of time is they tend not to say it to your face. Yeah. They tend to uh, spread rumours and talk behind your back and, and expect you to fail. Um, so that's an easy one. You just prove them wrong by doing it well. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, it's all about the execution when you work for a corporate, isn't it? Mm. You can spend um, months and months designing something, however you do it, but then you've got to build it and implement it, and that's the bit that will make or break your reputation internally. Um, so my advice there would be to stick really close to the build part of it and the delivery part of it, even though that may not be your job and you may be handing it over. You know, It's still going to be your profile that gets affected if it goes tits up. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I I try and do that, and part of the way I did that through um, through back when I was doing more user experience stuff was building sort of a multi-skilled team, so we could handle both the development as well as the design and the analytics and all the stuff that that went with it, and try to integrate all those different skills. Um, so you're kind of marking your own homework in a way by doing that, but that's okay because you know, it's it's about execution, as um, as we were always saying. Well, I was always saying back when I was employed. <laughs> <laughs> how, how do you deal? See, that's interesting because you, 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 that makes sense. Keep it, keep, keep it really close to your own, yeah. uh, your own team, your own, your own kind of fields of expertise. How do you, how, how did you, how, how will you deal with, with the omnipresent, um, uh, specter, specter, sorry, specter of marketing, and the omnipresent, kind of of those that have a little bit of knowledge um, and believe they can they can railroad the product design development and release into something that is is quite far removed from what you initially discovered from working with working with humans and users and individuals that, that just comes back to what I was saying before any of those individuals that, or groups of people that I think you're referring to will almost certainly be persuaded when they see the problem and when they see people struggling with the problem or or using a prototype that's a solution for whatever that problem was. Because mm. You can't argue with that. You, you can't say, oh, well, I think we should do this because if a user's testing something that is working really well, then that you've developed using the right methods and the kind of human-centered approach, it, it just gets it around there. And to be honest, as long as that person's not like the MD or CTO or something, it doesn't matter because they're the people that you've got to get around to that way of thinking and most of them are kind of buzzword bingo heads anyway so you know they all they all get service design and user experience design and all that stuff so it's fine it's, it's not it's not as big a problem i don't think internally in big corporates anymore as it used to be so okay uh, so that's interesting because I'll, I'll i'll work with a couple of i'll come director of a couple of one startup in particular and 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 it's, it's interesting how in that, and you've worked with startups, I know, um, yep. when you're at LV, and, and you know, and I'm sure you work with them in the future. I, I find it really interesting how um, corporates are ever baying for a startup and agile mentality when yep. it comes to service and product design and solution design. And, and actually, working in a startup, um, 
corporates really would be completely terrified if we worked in that if if you know if we brought that inside organizations yeah. because we have very little money 90 percent of what has to be done is smoke and mirrors yeah um and you have to release without necessarily having a product yeah and and my I can't think of a corporate organisation being absolutely comfortable with that, with that approach. How, 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 yeah, how do you, how do you, you've seen both sides of the fence, right? So you've yeah. had, you've had, you've had, you've had, you've had startups come to LV and say, oh, what do you think of this? Um, how do you, how did you deal with that? And how did you balance that, those two kind of slightly different, you know, they think they're doing the same thing, but they're doing things completely differently. Yeah. And I guess I've got a slightly different lens on it as well, because yeah. I've, kind of done this um lv tomorrow thing which is mm. which was aimed to be a um a startup but funded by a corporate where mm. you know we take a small team and we go out of the office and we we do the dream job that we all wanted you know we we are funded by this great big entity but we can act and behave and buy beanbags like a startup um <laughs> <laughs> which i actually got in trouble for and that's another story um Oh, we'll come to that in a minute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, let's not. <laughs> um, what's I talking about? Yeah, LV so, Tomorrow, Yeah. So the, the key problem is, like, loads of corporates have gone down this route and created innovation labs, and, and they're the guys that will go and talk to the startups and try and partner with them. And people like in in our industry, like um, Aviva, have done it quite successfully, where they've ended up buying a few startups and piggybacking off of it and um, scaling them, which is really cool to see. And that and other companies are um, trying to copy that that sort of model and, and do it, but it just doesn't work unless unless it's so bought into at the top level and it's not just a tick box. Like if you can see through all the rhetoric that you, <laughs> that we've gone through, if I'm honest, you mm. know this mentality of digital first and lean thinking and you know design thinking and stuff, which is clearly just a an article that someone's read one day without really understanding it, and saying you know we need to do this. The reality is, big company cannot move quick enough despite mm. having the best intentions often. Um, so genuinely, LV did have the best intentions and we did want to do these things and partner with startups and try and scale them, as well as building out our own new services and new products. But because we just, like, we've, we're, they took a small group of people and put them in a corner to do that, unless everyone else has that mentality in the whole company, which can be like 10,000 people, it's not mm. going to happen because it's slow and you've got lawyers to go through and sourcing people to go through and compliance people to go through who, who don't necessarily have that same way of thinking. So I don't think, going back to your point, the issue is that they do things differently necessarily. I think it's the speed in which they do them and mm. a corporate just can't get stuff out in the same time frame. Doesn't that mean... <clears throat> uh, doesn't that mean... Well, let's take the insurance industry, right? You look at Lemonade, right? Yeah. So... So, brilliant, fantastic, great idea, great product. They've used technology in a really smart way. They've also kind of turned the whole risk um, uh, uh, likelihood matrix on its head, really. Um, is it inevitable then that, that an organ, you know, without us, either of us knowing in detail their structure, is it inevitable that they will eventually suffer from the same problems that LV and Aviva and all these other guys have in terms of they get to a size where they can't? You know, they literally cannot move at such a pace. Is that just a natural yeah. evolution of business? It's maybe, maybe especially in, in the insurance industry, but is that just a natural evolution? Possibly, yeah. It, it's an interesting one with insurance. And if you compare it to like 
banking, for example. Banking yeah. is a really good case study because innovation happens um, kind of slowly. Like stuff comes out that's cool all the time, but there's no big disruption that happens like in other markets. You know, like a, a new app comes out for a bank and then gradually they add to it and then open banking happens and then you can pull all your bank accounts into one. And But that doesn't radically change how we all do banking. Even like Monzo coming out and, and the kind of internet banks like that, which have done an incredible job, they haven't disrupted us. They've just no. made it slightly better. And I think mm. insurance is the same. So people like Lemonade that have started up to try and take on the big players don't have the kind of the brand and the distribution and the trust and I think that's partly why I think yeah inevitably as they become bigger they'll become slower which I think is what you were getting at but the point is I don't necessarily think they will become bigger I think the innovation is more likely to happen by the big giants who will either just buy them or copy what they're doing yeah and, and do you think that's unique I suppose if you look at if you look at if you look at social media right you yeah. look at what Facebook have done you know that they're an advertising channel and a media um, platform I'm not sure it's a kind of uh, relevant example but but they just go out and buy people and actually it seems to slow down I mean it slows down their their rate of innovation and change and and sometimes I think especially take Facebook right they're looking now at merging what's it WhatsApp Instagram and Messenger all together yeah into one uh, completely cross uh, uh, cross integrated platform and that seems to to kind of go against what the rest of the market's doing. Mm. And, and I wonder if in that example, they, when they started and when they were growing on that rapid growth, they were very much, they created the market. They created that market for themselves. And now <clears throat> they're trying to recreate and reinvent that market. But people, you know, they seem slightly out of touch with their, with their uh, consumer base and their customers. And, and I look at the insurance, you know, the insurance market, and I and I wonder if, if, actually, Lemonade are in touch with their customers and their consumers, and people like LV and, and Aviva and all those other guys are, are not, they don't really, they're not really in, 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 in that close touch with their customers. Hence, why they're trying to, to throw, is that you know, is that what you found? Is that was that kind of another pressure on why the business wasn't necessarily buying into some of the innovation it needed to because they're getting a bit flabby and a bit lazy. I think, um, yeah, I mean, that's something that we talked about a lot and something which we tried to rectify when I was there. Um, but it's super hard when you're so big. Like, it's, mm. it's, you know, I can go out and sit in Starbucks and do all the guerrilla research I like, but that's not necessarily going to have the right effect it needs to have to, to change a business model and to behave differently. Um, but so much of insurance just comes down to brand, to be honest. And I guess that was what was quite strong about LV. It was a, a friendly um, local brand. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that, that's where all these guys are going to struggle. Because if you think about the way that the VCs have been funding, like InsureTech, as it's called, which is really sure. wanky buzzword. <laughs> um, like the funding is mental. It's crazy. There's so many so many startups I've been to like um, loads of accelerator and innovation events with pitch days and demo days and stuff and um, some awesome ideas out there some really good people um, really interesting technology the way that they're trying to trying to disrupt it but it hasn't happened and I've been going to these events for five years yeah so, so the question is why hasn't it happened yet yes like, yeah. like so 
I don't know is the answer. I just think it's to do with brand and distribution and trust mainly. Because it's <clears throat> because there is that because the brand is so strong, um, and and I was never I, I never really under, I don't really still understand brand, but I, I think you've hit on something there in terms of that trust um, uh, measure and that trust influence. The brand is so strong. Yeah, you know, I'm going to stay with LV. I believe what they're doing. Yeah. They, they, they're not going to rip me off. Um, uh, they might be using technology, oh, I don't know this, they might be using technology that is 10, 15 years old and, and Lemonade might be using something that's two or three years old. But actually, all I really care about is the fact that if something goes wrong, I'm going to get paid out. Yeah, and the other and, thing is, who actually gives a fuck about their insurance? I, I, you only come across it, you only, you only use it when there's something wrong, right? Yeah. And that's where it's different to banking, which you know you obviously use every day in most cases. Um, but yeah, I mean that that's a huge <laughs> issue that we always had when trying to innovate, and you're trying to engage people more mm. often, and it's it's something that your users don't care about; they just have to have or feel like they need to have to have peace of mind. And once you've got that peace of mind, you forget about it. That's kind of yeah. the point of peace of mind, which is, <laughs> yeah. which is yeah. what we were selling. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. yeah. So so ha- so so that. So, so how did LV react? I mean, you obviously, un, you, you, it came to your mind. You were like, well, okay, hold on a minute. There's only so far we can push this, this rock up the hill, yeah. Because actually, there's a there is that peace of mind issue. So how, how should businesses, with your in your experience, maybe not just insurance insurance, but how should businesses then address service design when actually, there is only so far they can go, in terms of innovation in terms of getting their customers to really buy into their the way they're redeveloping their services and tech you know should they i'm sure you're not saying what they should throw their hands up near and go right as long as we as long as we're reliable um respectful and and we deliver the service we said we're going to deliver that's fine we should we should sit on our hands yeah what should they do what what should they focus their innovation on what should they focus their attention on well, it's, it's different, isn't it, depending on what industry in. If you're in retail or travel, um, it's, it's a very different problem space for service design. And, you know, the insurance one is a terrible example because because of what we were just talking about. It's sort of, kind yeah. of a one-off thing. Um, but service design is so, like, it's becoming such a front-of-mind thing. And uh, actually, I had an interview for a job the other day, and they were asking me about like what my what my inspiration was for wanting to be a service designer, and why, yeah. why do I do it? And yeah. um, it's probably going to sound crap, but the, like if if you ever go to a theme park, and then you go to Disney World or Disneyland, and you look at the experience of of the two things, and you know there's like the coffee shop example of what is good service design of you know two yeah. coffee shops that sell the same thing, and you go to one over the other because of one's been service design, the other hasn't. I think a better example of that, or maybe it's just in my mind, is the Disney World versus another theme park thing. Because you, as you're going into a ride and as you're meeting the, the staff and you know you're queuing up and everything about it is thought about, every little experience and interaction that you have, maybe not in Paris because they're kind of miserable in France, but you know, <laughs> you know the other ones, it is thought yeah. about and is designed, and that's been designed through iteration and observation and, and all the things that it should be. Um, so as long as your problem space allows you to get creative in that way, yeah. then then that that's the answer to the question because there's a million things that you can tweak and observe and change. And uh, it's like, I got this book today on um, service design methods 
and it has hundreds of different tools and ways of doing it. It's like just watch people record them on your phone yeah. and then design something that they're having a problem with. It's just yeah. It's I not, saw that. Was you that put that on? You put yeah. that on Twitter, didn't you? Did you put something like that on Twitter about? Um... Yeah, no, it was LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Yeah. Was it LinkedIn? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, ah, oh, okay. He's got a. He's got a new book, and b. He, that, that that's right. What you were saying, you know. So so in in a way, it, it's kind. Of, this sounds this sounds pretty crap, but but it's reshaping in people's expectations, reshaping people's expectations in terms of okay, service design uh, is innovation, can be innovative, but it's it, it might not necessarily be the big bang. It might be tweak, refine, tweak, refine, all focused on creating that yep. that improved experience rather than go, right, we're going to create a new arm of the business and we're going to come up with really cool ideas. Yeah, it's absolutely. More... Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, tried, we spent a lot of time trying to um, define what innovation meant to LV. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I saw like, um, I always used to talk about this when I was doing presentations about it, but these guys, like if you look into academia and I don't know, just even if you just browse LinkedIn or whatever, you'll find loads of different really complicated descriptions. But to us, we just define it as something new and something of yeah. value. And that, that can be a new product or it can be just a new tweak to an existing product. It doesn't really matter. Mm. And uh, yeah, I think you can design anything around that, new and of value. And, and, and that's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut that bit out. We're going to use that again. That's, you know... You're full of really good little things, Dave. Really good little uh, kind of sayings, and uh, you're very, you're very astute. You're very astute. What? Yeah, but, um, but I don't make them up. I uh, I copy them mostly. Well, yeah, that's fine. But uh, <laughs> everyone plagiarises a bit, right? Um, so on that score, then, how did you, in your experience and in your experiences, how did you find agencies and third parties? And in terms of their their true understanding of service design and their true understanding of the concept of innovation, did you know? Because obviously my experience is quite varied across the agencies. But but what was your as, a, as on the client side, on a corporate side, when when you were trying to engage with agencies and talking to them about service design and innovation, what kind of what lessons did what warning signs did you see? What lessons did you learn? What advice would you give? To, to someone who was in an agency and or, or as an individual as a freelancer as a service designer what, what kind of what, what kind of lessons have you learned from dealing with agencies like that um i think i'd go back to what i said at the beginning about relationship because um you know people buy people or then they buy stuff and services and um that is so true when you're you're working for a big corporate and you're seeing like suppliers come in on a daily basis to pitch to you mm. and um you know just having one or two good relationships with really good agencies who you can stick with for your whole time um is, is the way to do it really and it, forming that relationship is you know obviously a very hard thing because there's only a finite number of people that that you need to go out and find and then form relationships with um but yeah people by people that's the first thing like don't just don't just rock up with a bunch of random slides that the person who you're pitching to has probably seen that a hundred times already that same day. You know, it's it's very hard to find out what it is that that they want to buy and to try and pitch that in the right way. I'm talking nonsense here, but it's kind of how my brain is thinking about all these pitches no, no, that, no. I, that I've sat yeah. through. Um, and we worked with a, 
a really, really good consultancy stroke agency, um, bunch of guys called Flux, and mm-hmm. I think they pitch themselves as an innovation agency. And they embedded consultants within our team um, for quite a long time, actually. And the thing that worked so well with them and us is that we had a very similar mentality on how we um, how we need to basically list out all the assumptions that we have about a project or a piece of work. And um, that's not something that should come out of our heads. That's stuff that came out of all of the stakeholders co-creating yeah. that we are working with. So we list out assumptions and then we just we just post it, note them up, and then we work out how to test them all. And because we both had that same way of thinking, we just gelled. And you know, I was because I'm a probably a UX guy traditionally. That's kind of how UX people think. You, you know, you get something, you don't assume it's going to work. You prototype it and you test it. So to find the right agency who thought like that and i'm not saying that there's only one person one agency that does that because there's obviously hundreds and i've spoken to hundreds but yeah to have the relationship and the way of thinking and to somehow try and gel that yeah it's it's a hard thing and you know i'm trying to think how i met them in the first place now i think they were just introduced to me through a mutual connection but yeah, and and they and they and they simply understood they could put everything that the were, were they. I always find the the, the best agencies, the best individuals, the best businesses are those that can can put. They empathise and they can understand the context that you're working within, and they can understand the context that your users and your customers are experiencing. Was that was that one of the things that came across quite strongly? I mean, I know you going you might be going back a bit, but yeah, were that were they able to were they able to understand that relatively quickly? Yeah, I mean, the only reason because most corporates have a you know big ass digital team nowadays. The only reason you mm. you go to agencies is to to make you look good. You know, mm. you you need them to exactly as you said to empathise with what whatever it is you're trying to achieve, and that. This is going to sound awful, but that may not That's necessarily fine. be the best thing for the project, but it kind of needs to be the best thing for 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 me or whoever that person is that you're dealing with. Because that might not just be a user thing or a commercial thing. It might be a relationship building stakeholder management thing. Yeah. And uh, more often than not, it is um, because that's ultimately what's going to get you promoted. The, like the more people that you can start to influence them. Blah, blah. So that's really important to understand who, what the true objective is from the person that you're pitching to, because mm. it may not be as it seems on the face of it. Well, it very rarely is, is it? Isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So you've got to present one thing, but actually you're looking to do something else. Yeah. Totally. So I want to kind of move away because I'm. This is a new era, a new chapter of your life, really. You know, you you kind of really take following your service design passion and your your UX and your creative passion. So. So in that in that area, how do you think, you know, with the change in tech and the changing way that users are interacting with businesses, users are interacting with technology, we've we've had discussions in the past and rolled our eyes mutually, I think, at things like voice and stuff like um, uh, gesture and all that kind of stuff. But how do you think the world of UX, uh, uh, in a very broadest sense, because, you know, experiences are still experiences whatever the channel yeah there are similarities of creating certain emotions and um uh, uh, certain feedback loops and that kind of stuff but how do you think tech is going to potentially change the role of service design and ux and and, and potentially change the way that that you're going to work in the future and the, the kind of opportunities you're going to you're going to bring forward to your to your clients and your employers in the future i think from a 
a UX perspective, and I've I've said this before and been wrong about it, <laughs> so don't hold me to it. But I think from a UX perspective, at some point, digital experiences will become almost perfect. Mm. And I don't know if it will then become a dying industry or if the industry will evolve into other things and perhaps become more creative again. Mm. I don't know. Um, especially with the with the move to voice and autonomy with interface design. Mm. Like when your car's autonomous, you know, how does it? Why does it really matter how you interact with it if it's your voice doing that interaction? Yeah, yeah, yeah. S- stuff like that, which kind of um, I, I don't know the answer to, but it's the type of thing I, I think about. Uh, yeah. Futuristically, with service design, on the other hand, um, the, yeah, I think the way that tech is going to influence it in the near term is through um, through tools. There's a there's not much out there from a tool perspective on how to effectively um, design services. Yes. I mean, there is. That's not right. There is. There's hundreds of things out there, but none of them are any good. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think software is going to start to become more mainstream just for the purpose of service designers who aren't necessarily visual designers or UX designers, but just guys like me who are more interested in the science of design and the, the human element and the behavioral stuff. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd give that as an answer as, as crap as it might be, Dave. No, it's brilliant. <laughs> no, because cause I agree with you. I, I spoke to um, uh, Andy uh, Milson a while ago and we were talking on, on a podcast and we were talking about that loss of creativity. Yeah. That, that complete loss of creativity in terms of digital it's kind of you know things like um material design and all that stuff right that google you know how dare google impose <laughs> design structure on creatives right in, yeah. in a way you could look at it and go that's absolute and we've we've gone for it we've fallen for it because we we believe that um speed and visibility mm. are much more important than uh experience and emotion yeah and 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 I, I I absolutely agree with you. I think experiences. Um, I think transactional uh, transactions have been confused with experiences, and mm. and I think we've got we, we 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 see experiences now as a simple, in, in many cases as how quickly can we get someone through this form? Yeah. How quickly can we get someone to this to this conversion point? When actually that's 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 not an experience. That's a transaction. An experience is creating and stirring. Um, memories and emotions in in the way you interact with people and and mm. I agree I think I think rather than speed people through their digital interactions in some ways yeah the autonomous car fine you, you know you just want to get from A to B and you want to do it as comfortably and safely as possible but if we're talking about interacting and having a building a relationship with someone digital experiences in the very simplest term need to slow down they need to make people stop and look and wonder and go, oh my God, that's beautiful, or how did, you know, not, not necessarily how did they know that about me, but I'm happy to, to exchange my information with this business because they're listening. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I think um, another buzzword coming up here, but we spent a lot of time talking about over the last, um, I guess, 18 months at LV, concept of digital ecosystems and mm. interconnectivity between experiences. And I think, um, I think that's only going to, evolve into a, uh, a bigger part of all of our lives and hopefully open banking is is the first step in that so imagine if your your um, banking app can pull in like things like your will and your mortgage if it's with a different company and then it can recommend like because it knows stuff about you and it might know your assets and your spending habits it can start to recommend you other products you can buy things through that 
through efficiency but that's kind of the converse to what you were saying about creativity yeah. but I, I think both things are going to happen um yeah I guess I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm more well, interested in the, the scientific connectivity of it all. Sure. Rather than how stuff yeah. looks and feels. And it's it's kind of, yeah, it's a challenge for me because I, I like that, but I'm just no good at it. I'm like a terrible designer. No, yeah, but I know, I don't think what you mean. It's, it's that dichotomy. Because, yeah. one, the scientific side of it will be fed and feed into the creative aspect of it. We'll, we'll, uh, this is for another, another podcast, but... As an industry, a digital industry, we've gone far too much down the data route. Yeah. You know, we, we, we rely on the data too much rather than relying on gut feel, emotion, desire. You know, we just go, well, this is what people like, so we'll just put more of this shit online, you know, because yeah. we know the data proves it. No one's ever, it's a bit like the old IBM thing. No one ever got sacked for selecting IBM as a software vendor. No one's ever going to get sacked for relying on the data. Yeah. Right? Someone will get sacked for coming up with a ridiculous idea that might just be more memorable. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and I think there's that there's that this there's that opportunity to connect them in a much more effective way. But I haven't come across a business that's done that yet, and I certainly haven't come across an agency that understands clearly enough to me the importance of of aligning data, albeit important. You know, data is important, but having the courage of their convictions and coming up with something different, inexperiences and design and products and all that, you know, all that stuff. Yeah, and it's, I mean, that's a really like close topic to my heart. That the the merger of data to creativity to somewhere in the middle. There's this scientific bit that hopefully comes out as a design, and um, that that's really what I tried to do when building a team at LV was to mix like our data analysts with our creative designers and our UX people, and to try and answer kind of well to try and work out both the what using data and the why using behavioral research and put the two together to try and create better experiences mm. but um that's going back a little while now and yeah done and dusted ah uh, you're moving on yeah. so 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 we'll wrap up in a second i'm conscious of so the next the next steps that you're going to follow in terms of your uh, in a way you're going to position yourself you're obviously going to position yourself in areas that you think you can make a difference and you're going to position yourself in, in an environment where you're going to get the, the maximum uh, kind of learning because I know you're, you know, you're, you're always always learning so, yeah. so over the next three or four years where, where would you like to what kind of roles would you like to be involved in and, and why do you think that's important in terms of service design and UX and I'm kind of, I know they're different things but they're kind of we're talking about them in, in, in the whole, really. Um, yeah, I don't know, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm, I mean, I've worked for big corporates for ages now, and um, I, I kind of want to go into consultancy. I'm starting to do a few little bits here and there, consultancy-wise. Um, but, you know, I've got big corporate interviews coming up as well, so I'm kind of hoping one of them will offer me a, um, a consultancy role or a contract, at least, where I can start to do more consultancy um, a couple of days a week um, I definitely want to move back into more design work um, mm. I've probably stepped away from that a little bit and I've done far too much management crap that is mm. um, you know it just bogs you down with paperwork and risk and compliance and stuff that I'm no good at and people are better than me you know why am I doing it yeah. Um, so I'm yeah I, I definitely want to go back into a more holistic design role and just call myself a designer again rather than a head of digital or whatever whatever yeah. I was more recently um, 
so yeah, that's the plan. Just have to see you, how it pans out. I'm kind of enjoying being um, employed at the moment. So you're talking my language in terms of not wanting to get involved in all the management crap. I, uh, I. That's probably why I looked startled the first time we met because yeah. I was probably dealing with some HR issue that entirely, <laughs> entirely of our own making that uh, that I had to somehow tidy up in a way that didn't basically get us pulled up in front of who, who knows what. So I don't miss that at all. And, and, and doing what I do now for wonderful clients, but doing what I do now, I do not, and they all know this who listen to it, they, I, I do not envy their position around yeah, the management crap at all. Yeah. It's the, do it, mate. It's the great thing to do. Get out of that. Yeah, let the ego leave the ego at the door. And um, <laughs> I'm convinced that middle managers do it for the. It's an ego thing. It's not because they actually want to do it. It's an ego. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I can relate to that. I've I've been there, and uh, yeah, oh, yeah. It, it is that. It is that. Um, yeah. But then again, I've got a massive mortgage. You know. So ah well. Yeah. Swings and roundabouts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You say I'm old, Dave. I'm, I'm really old. I'm really old. Hey, we haven't talked about music or sports or any yes. of the other stuff. Yeah, man, we're gonna get there. Are we? Yeah, yeah, oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I thought you were wrapping yeah. up. I was getting scared. No, I was wrapping up the service design bit of it because because. Um, uh, but do you know it's, the, the service design bit's important, right? Because the guys that listen to this are are. Like I've said to you before, they're either they're agency side and corporate side. They they are they are developing new startups. They're going through the struggles of actually how do I get this in front of a corporate body, right? Because yeah. like you said, the corporates have got the money, but equally some of them are in corporates going how the fucking hell do I change mm-hmm. what's happening, the nonsense I'm hearing, all the crap I'm seeing. So so I think I know that's why I asked you on. You'll you you know they'll you've you've got a lot of insight and and. I think we captured all that quite nicely. I haven't, but you're... I haven't. I've been winging it for years. No. Yeah, but everyone does. <laughs> everyone, everyone listening to this podcast wings it. Whatever they, you know, whatever they say, I'll wing it. I don't even know what I'll wing, but I'll wing it. Right. Um, so, yeah, the, yeah, much more importantly, we've put that to one side. So, much more importantly, so what, you know, what is, a, what is Dave? What, what motivates you as Dave? Where do you want to, you know, what, what, when you're sitting there with a glass of red wine at night and you've stopped thinking about service design, mm. what, you know, I know you like your music like me, what inspires you musically and what, what kind of, what, not just what emotions, but how important is music in your, how important is music in your life in terms of, you know, because I find it, as I've got older, and you go for, you know, I've gone through mental, you know, mental health challenges and all that kind of stuff. And there's always this hook of music for me for something to hang on to, whether it's Paul Weller or Bowie or um, obscure American bands from the 1990s that take mm. me back to a different time. What about you? How do you? How important is music to you, and how much do you hang on to it? That is a uh, a very deep question. Yeah, man, you want it? We, yeah, it's important. <laughs> yeah, but my answer is so non-deep; it's ridiculous. Basically, yeah, I'm, cool. I'm, I'm just like a, a I see myself as a 15 year old kid who just listens to punk rock and metal <laughs> still, you know. But I haven't I haven't even ever evolved from that, <laughs> either emotionally or physically. <laughs> punk rock, man. I, I, there's a few people I know who, who who love who love, and I don't mind it. So so. Got fifteen year old. What year? How old were you? What year were you fifteen then? Oh God, I don't know. Well, I'm thirty six now. So, so it's nearly twenty years ago. Yeah. So 90, 97, 98. So 
what did you listen to from 1997 and 98 then, when I was a lot older? So it's it's kind of it's a interesting well, it's not interesting to most people it's interesting to me that I was you know I at that point I was really into and I still am really like stuff like skateboarding and snowboarding and and there there was a musical scene that went with that uh, mm. which I've never evolved from so I still listen to bands like um, No Effects and Pennywise um, kind of the American skate punk genre as it was known at the time um, and then yeah I, I listened to a lot of metal music as well mainly just Metallica to be honest but. <laughs> yeah. so what what because I'm, I'm not a heavy i'm a I'm quite i don't mind punk i'm not a heavy metal guy so mm. for me me to take my not first but early tentative steps onto the metal ladder yeah what would you what would you oh, what would you point me in the direction of it's like wow okay i quite like it but i'm not an expert on it so to to, to hook me in what would you do you like um do you like rage against machine yeah 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 don't mind them yeah, yeah there you go Job done. Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Why not? Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Rage Against Machine was the uh, the second album I ever bought, and uh, the first was Nirvana, Nevermind, and uh, I listened to Nirvana and I loved it. But <laughs> even like as a youngster, I was a bit nuts because I was like, it's it's not heavy enough. And then I discovered Rage, and then like other like two heavy bands which I then didn't like, stuff like Pantera and Slayer. Yeah, I've heard of it. Slayer. Um, <laughs> yeah. I know someone who loves Slayer. Yeah, I know. It's on your podcast. We need to, ask, we, <laughs> yeah. I need to hook up with this guy. Whoever he is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're good, for, they're good for comedy value, but... Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was your first album. See, that's how much cooler you are than me. Your first album was Nevermind. Mine, if I remember it correctly, was Brothers in Arms by Dire Straits. That's cool. On cassette, yeah. Well, yeah, mine would have been too. But that—that's the only cool thing about me is that I always tell people that story because it makes you sound cool. But yeah, but it's a good story to tell. Yeah. <laughs> Although we went, um, uh, we got a Bridport. Bridport's only down the road from us, and yeah. uh, they got a really good record, uh, record kind of store. Their vinyls and all that. And mm. um, we were there the other day, and I was doing me. We, we bought Bob Dylan, and I bought some. Oh, nice. Uh, did I buy? Can't remember who else I bought. Oh, Reefa and all that. Reefa Franklin and Stevie Wonder, and um, I found. And you'll be too young for this, but I found Alexander O'Neill, uh, an Alexander O'Neill album, and um, uh, me and Natalie almost yelped with delight. And that's my, my, Natalie's my wife, not somebody I just met on the street. Okay. And uh, uh, bought this album from uh, 1986, um, maybe a bit earlier, for three pound. And it was brilliant. And it just it's amazing. It just takes you back, doesn't it, right? It takes you back to a 15-year-old boy. It takes yeah. us back to, to 15-year-old kids growing up in the mid-'80s when everything was shit and <laughs> politically. Uh, but I'm, I'm determined not to talk about Brexit for the next couple of weeks because I'm just, I just despair. But everything was shit politically. And now we go, yeah. 2019, everything is shit politically. Yeah. Um, we've just got more access to better music. Yeah. And, and 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 what about and what about sport and now because we mean you've never really talked about sport sport we've talked about yeah you know uh, kind of swimming the kids your kids you yeah. know like swimming and you like the boarding and that kind of stuff but but you know what's, what 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 is your what is your sporting yeah. delights you know don't say boring the boring on stuff like football or stuff like that what but you know I used to like football um, mm. back when. Uh, like when I was younger, but I, I went to see a game and it was, um, when was I? It was like my first year of uni, so I'd have been 
19, 20 or something. And uh, we got tickets to White Hart Lane because I was a Spurs fan when I was growing up. Good man. I like you even more, Dave. Yeah. Well done. Uh, but no, but the, it doesn't end well, this story. And ah, okay. <laughs> no, nothing ever does with Spurs, don't worry about it. It's fine. <laughs> and uh, anyway, the, it was a yeah, West Ham game at White Hart Lane. Just a, it turned into a massive fight. And I was going to say, I know what's coming. Yeah. yeah. And I was just stood in the middle of it with my mate. And you know, we were both stoner students and we were just there going, what? what? What's going on, man? Why are we in this scenario? And that was it for me, because I was teetering on the edge of not being into football at that point anyway. And it's like, no, nah, I'm, I'm just done with this. Um, but I, I kind of like rugby. I, I used to play, believe it or not, when I was younger and really enjoyed watching um, international rugby. I go and watch club rugby every now and then. But, um, but yeah, I mean, mainly it's the board stuff. So, um, yeah, skate, snowboard, surf, wakeboard, anything that I can strap onto my legs is what I do, really. See, man, that's amazing. I've yeah. never done any of them. Really? I've never. No, never done any of that. It's just been... I don't know why. I just... Well, I do know why. I severely hurt myself. But... Um, there is that. But... Yeah. I've never... Yeah, the rugby I'm, I'm, I'm into. I mean, Six Nations, right? This weekend coming up. So, yeah. So, so that'd be... I'm going yeah. to be in um, I'm gonna be in Chamonix for the first game as well. Can't wait. So you're going to watch it, right? Yeah. That's Friday night, right? That's Friday night, yeah. Yeah. No, so, yeah. Uh, well, the, yeah, the... First game's Friday, yeah. England game is Saturday, Ireland. Oh, right. Yeah. Well, as long as you don't hurt yourself, I'm sure you're bound. I would I'd absolutely, yeah, ruin <laughs> ruin myself. I think it would be wouldn't be any good at all. I don't think. And what about? Because um, I know you read a lot, and I like uh, I like asking people what kind of books, what kind of reading podcasts. Yeah. Um, what kind of what kind of stuff would you recommend in terms of? Well, every aspect of your life, you know, certainly from a from a professional perspective, but. You know anything that that you kind of listen to around um, health, well-being, all that kind of stuff. Anything, any books you recommend? What kind of stuff are you, uh, you know, into at the moment? I don't really um, read too many worky books. Like mm. um, you know, maybe once every three months I'll get one and I'll browse for it and I'll read the bits that I'm interested in. But um, to me, reading's a relaxing thing, and like work isn't very relaxing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I've really got into Robert Harris recently. I've just read all his novels. Um, in, in a few months and uh, yeah he was the guy who wrote the Cicero novels yeah um, but if you haven't come across him before what's what's interesting about him is like it's it's gripping it's like it's not Dan Brown level of rubbish gripping but it's sure. <laughs> it's yeah. um it's they're real page turners but they're all based in like tremendous amounts of research that he's done as an author um, so yeah he wrote a really interesting book around um Munich and what happened with uh, Chamberlain. That's right, isn't it? Yeah, it was Munich. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then a really cool book about um, choosing a new pope, and and just like random fictional stuff which is rooted in reality. Um, so that's cool. I'd, I'd recommend that. Um, favorite book ever? Probably Lord of the Rings. So oh, I was going to choose a book. Actually, no, I wouldn't. I'd say that I preferred the Game of Thrones books. Actually, Iceland oh. books to that. Yeah. Do you know I've never, I've never, I've never watched Game of Thrones. What? Yeah, never. Right, never you, watched it. How do you hang up this thing? I, I <laughs> <laughs> I've never, I've never watched it. Yeah. 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 Well, start with the novels if you can, because they're they're really good. Really. Nah, man. Nah. I was like, it's like Lord. Of, I see you're gonna hate me now. I've never read. I've never read Lord of the Rings. What? I've never read. Nah, nah. Never my favorite, my best, my best book, favorite book ever is Danny the Champion of the World. <laughs> Seriously, man, it's the best book in the world ever. Yeah. I, I absolutely adore it. Well, my but, daughter yeah. loves that book, and she's like six, so yeah, it kind of sounds. <laughs> it will stay. It stays with you, mate. It, <laughs> it pulls. It pulls you in. What about movie? Yeah. What's, what's your favourite movie then? 
Good question. Probably it's not. It's not a particularly. Um... See, if you can't answer it immediately, then you haven't thought yeah. it through before. Well, I kind of. It's, it's not a particularly. Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, uh, inspiring choice, but it, it's a really. It's your shank, probably. Okay. I, I yeah. Just, yeah. Just, great I've always. Yeah, I just always love that, and because the actors in it are so amazing. What about what about you? You're going to say what about you? You might say something from left field. I never know what you're going to say. Um, yeah, I'm, well, Empire Strikes Back obviously is is the best movie of all time. Hmm. Um, but I'm a massive Star Wars nerd. Uh, I'm a bit of a stereotype Star Wars metal. Like if I had long yeah, I was going to say, uh, <laughs> you'd probably find me in Games Workshop if I wasn't too cool. Games Workshop. <laughs> Warhammer, playing Warhammer, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you are, right? So you've, you you like Lord of the Rings, Game of Thrones, Metal, Star Trek, Star Wars, sorry. Whoa, 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 whoa. Don't say yeah. Star Trek, because that's, that's Have not Have I said cool. something wrong? Yeah. yeah that's not cool. <laughs> no. Wow. I can see you in Games Workshop, mate. <laughs> that would be cool, man. Grow that hair long. Well, you sound like a web developer. Right. I know. Well, I was going to be, but I was too crap at logic and math to be any good at it. Like, <laughs> yeah. My my first job was development, and yeah, they just let me go gently, which is a shame. Mate, they just they just copy and paste it now from Stack Overflow. Yeah, That's all yeah. you do, a developer, or or if you're doing if you if you're using any kind of program now, you can just start typing out your your code line, and it finishes it for you. It's all nonsense. Yeah. There's no there's no skill in it anymore, right? <laughs> How many people listening to this are developers then? Uh, probably about a fifth. So they're they're fine. They're fine. They hate me anyway. So, but they still listen. Yeah. That's the thing. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why. I think they feel sorry for me. Okay, fair enough. Thank you, mate. That's I'm right. conscious. Of, I'm conscious of your time. I think it's been really good because because like I said, the service design aspect of it and your challenges and the fact that you've kind of been in it for, for, for eight years or nine years and, and in the industry for a lot longer and you've kind of stepped out of it. And I think it was really good timing that you've had a month out and it just gives you an ability to reflect on things a little bit a little bit more, right? Yeah. And you can see things for a little bit more for what they are. Um, yeah. And, and if anyone's listening who's looking for someone, you need to employ Dave because he's brilliant, but he's really, really expensive really really expensive <laughs> yeah. like i don't I, we haven't talked about money for this podcast either so i don't know if that, is that a thing or no i'm joking no no, no, no it's, it is a thing money money for this podcast is a thing but it's usually the other way around so, okay it's so like the guys self pr yeah okay yeah the other guys have paid me so we'll um i'll wait for you to get back and then okay. we'll meet up for beer and you can you know awesome do that. mate thanks a lot i'm uh, i'm gonna press the big red button to stop recording now so right. thanks for your time mate that's great Hey, hope you enjoyed that. Um, a bit longer than normal, but hopefully well worth it. Um, Dave's a fantastic guy, incredibly intelligent, and um, uh, well worth talking to uh, for stopping engaging in any in any projects potentially that you've got going forward. He's he's at um, you can get hold of Dave at hello at david-oliver.com. So do drop him a line. Um, I've got a few recommendations this uh, week just to kind of keep it nice and short and brief. Um, uh, ahead of that, I'm hoping to get a couple more podcasts out in the next couple of weeks, one of which I'm hoping to have with Amy King, who's the co-founder of People Matter. She's a behavioural scientist and has really fascinating insight into um, how behavioural science can be used to better engage with uh, with 
ourselves as, as, as groups, with, with staff, with clients, with products, with, with each other. So I'm hoping to get on in the next couple of weeks. On the subject of behavioural science, there is a um, programme on Radio 4 on the 14th of Feb. I know you probably will be out romancing, but um, it's called The Bottom Lines with Evan Davis, and it's about behavioural science, talking about how corporates... I've got a few... talk about how corporates have used behavioural science to develop their own their own offerings. Uh, it's got a few senior business leaders on there talking about it. Um, there's a podcast that Russell Brand does um, called Under the Skin. He's got a fascinating guy on there that I've actually seen talk live, a guy called John McAvoy, um, talking about... Um, how he's transformed his life. That's fascinating, fascinating talk he's gone from being a, being inside to being a, 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 a world record holding Ironman. Um, there's another one called Clear and Vivid with Alan Alder, ex-Mash. Have a listen to him. He really, it's a very human, um, a very human podcast. Um, and finally, The Infinite Monkey Cage with Brian Cox talks about how to build a bionic human and if humans are still evolving. That's it. There'll be another podcast soon. Take care. Um, See you soon, hopefully.